Bible is with me to 1 Corinthians, and we're still in chapter 1. We will actually venture into the early parts of chapter 2 today. We're continuing with part 2 of Fools and Wise Men. And what we have learned thus far is that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has begun his correction of the church in Corinth. He has urged them to be unified in their doctrine and in their practice. And that's important because what we believe is going to dictate what we will do. Make no mistake about it, what you and I believe to be truth is going to have a very direct impact on the choices that we make, the kind of lives that we live. And so Paul has urged them to be unified in their speech, what they say about who God is and what God has done through Christ on the cross, and in their practice, how they live out the gospel, we are to be unified just as there is unity within the Trinity, and the unity that exists within the Trinity is consistent with the nature and the character of Christ. Now, as we looked at last time, for thousands of years... Man has attempted to answer the questions related to his origin, to his purpose, to his destiny. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is this really all about? And so philosophy and human wisdom are man's attempts to answer those questions apart from God, apart from a relationship with God. But what you and I need to be reminded of is this. God has answered those questions for us in His Word. Where human philosophy or wisdom agrees with Scripture, it then becomes unnecessary. And where human philosophy or wisdom disagrees with Scripture, it becomes misleading and will lead us away from the central message of man's redemption fulfilled and provided for at the cross. So in the world, within human wisdom and human philosophy, the cross is considered foolishness because it makes no sense to the natural man. How could God do something like that? Can't I do something? Shouldn't I do something? Isn't what I'm doing enough? Makes the cross unnecessary. Well, the obvious answer to that question is the cross is absolutely necessary and you and I can't do anything to earn or to deserve our own salvation. So in the city of Corinth, the clarity of the gospel message as communicated through the cross of Christ has been corrupted with the addition of human philosophy and wisdom. So if you take the cross of Christ... The central message of God's love for mankind, God's wisdom displayed in the cross of Christ. And if you begin to add philosophy and wisdom and human understanding to that, you don't come out with the cross of Christ. You come up with man's construct. You come up with something that makes sense to man. You come up with something that is an attempt for man to better understand Something about God, His origin, His destiny, etc., apart from the cross of Christ. Now, we need to be reminded that philosophy was a prized pursuit among the Greeks. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, there were over 50 identifiable 
philosophical parties within Greek culture, and these had a heavy influence among the salvation that the Corinthians knew and their pursuit of transformation as they lived their lives for Christ. The same thing is true for us today. What we know about the Bible, what the Bible says to us, most specifically the message of the cross, if we add a bunch of stuff to that, The lives we live are not going to live out the gospel message with great clarity. It's going to become very muddied, very confusing, and very inconsistent with what the Bible says about the lives that we are to live. So, sadly, this problem of human wisdom and corrupt—excuse me, of human wisdom corrupting our understanding of the gospel—continues to persist today. And most notably in our culture today, it exists within what is called the emerging church. I read some of this last week, our second hour study that Ken and John are leading us in, John MacArthur's book, The Truth Wars. He explains some of what the emerging philosophy is within the emerging church. And here's a quote from one of the most influential authors within the emerging church movement today. He says, I quote, I don't think we have the gospel right yet. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy. So what does that mean? It means when you and I read the account of Christ's death on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for man's sin, as the only way for man to measure up to the holy standard of God's righteousness, we can't understand that. It isn't clear enough. It isn't obvious enough. We need to add something to it. The author would go on to say, we're not sure what we are needing to add to it, but what we are sure of this. We can't be sure about what the gospel message really means. Well, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But this is what is taking place within the emerging church today. And although somewhat differently, The philosophy and the wisdom that exists within our culture has an impact on you and I. Most of the time in ways we don't even recognize and also in ways that we cannot see as it's being lived out in our lives. You and I need to be transformed by the truth of God's word and there needs to be an intentional pursuit to live out the gospel in our lives daily apart from, separated from, any human wisdom or any human philosophy. So beginning in 118, is a very brief review of a very long message from last week, Paul begins to explain the wisdom of God as it relates to the message of the cross and our salvation. Now the bullet points are in your sermon outline that you have in your bulletin today. So the wisdom of God is primarily expressed through the cross. God's wisdom for the need of man, God's wisdom in answering the questions, who am I, where am I going, what am I here for, this wisdom is primarily communicated to us through the cross. The message of the cross is very simply this, God loves man, man has no hope apart from the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and Christ himself bridges the gap between between man's need and God's provision, he is the only way. That's the message of the cross, and it contains the wisdom of God. But in human philosophy and in human wisdom, 
The cross is foolishness. It makes no sense to the natural man. The idea that God took human form, was crucified, and raised in order to provide for man's forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven is moronic. It makes no sense at all. The human mind can't compute that. And when man tries to compute that, apart from the wisdom of God, it comes out meaning something like, well, that certainly isn't enough. Don't I have to do something? Shouldn't I do something? Shouldn't I give something? Isn't my moral lifestyle enough? Isn't my intellectual belief of God enough? No, it isn't. That's why Jesus came, and that is where God's wisdom is most clearly portrayed to man is through the cross of Christ. Since the message of the cross contains the wisdom of God, it is powerful and it is able to save the lost sinner. Human wisdom, in contrast to that, is weak. It is incapable of enabling man to know God, to know His wisdom, to know His provision, and therefore, human wisdom rejects God's wisdom expressed through the cross. Now, specifically, in the Corinthian culture, where there are over 50 identifiable philosophical means available or teachings None of them agree with each other. Everybody is saying something different. So you would understand that to breed a lot of confusion, a lot of division, perhaps even a great deal of animosity within the Greek culture and potentially even within the Corinthian church. Human wisdom cannot pave the way and knowing God or understanding the significance of or the need for His provision on the cross. God's wisdom nullifies human wisdom. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, for it is written, I will, dis- I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And what God basically says is that I have rejected human wisdom And in its place, I have substituted my own because human wisdom will never allow man to know him or to understand the message of the cross. The the wisdom of God and his means for salvation cannot be defeated. Human philosophy and human wisdom will never replace or erase the message of the cross. Verse 20 says, at the tail end of that, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. All that man has ever said, all that man ever will say about his origin or his purpose or his destiny has been declared foolishness by God and the message of the cross. If we are to try to understand who we are, why we are here, and where we are going, apart from the message of the cross, we have allowed ourselves to be mirrored, mired by human philosophy and human wisdom. God has defeated that. Human wisdom will never supersede God's wisdom and the message of the cross is the only way that we can know God, please God, serve God, and look forward to meeting God 
when our days in this world are over. Where man is weak in knowing God and securing salvation, God is strong and powerful and His provision cannot be overturned and it will not be substituted for by any other means or method. God's wisdom is spiritually appraised. This is what we find out in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the word, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So man will never come to know God's provision for a salvation through human wisdom, through human philosophy. We will only come to know it through the cross. God has intentionally thwarted man's attempts to know Him apart from His chosen mean, which again is the cross. Lastly, God's wisdom will save those who believe. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it isn't human philosophy that enables us to know God. It isn't human wisdom that enables us to know God. It is very simply belief and God's provision on the cross that is the source of God's wisdom and answering the question that man has asked from the very beginning, who am I, where am I going, and why am I here? Now let's pick up in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God, and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So as we continue in our outline, as we look at these descriptions of God's wisdom, we see now number six, God's wisdom is for even you. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many mo- not many noble. So the word calling here refers to the effectual calling of God that leads to our salvation. It is this calling that is our spiritual awakening. It is what enables us to believe. It's what enables us to understand. And it's what creates within us our desire to submit to the truth of the gospel message as it, as it is revealed to us through the cross. Now, Paul qualifies their being called by saying this, 
Their calling had absolutely nothing to do with them. There was nothing in them according to the standards of the world that merited their being called. And so he uses these examples. You weren't particularly wise. You are not people of great power, nor are you men of notoriety. They were simply sinful people who were called by God to salvation. In other words, when God looked upon you, Corinthians, He didn't see a bunch of wise people who were deserving of salvation. He didn't see a bunch of powerful people who could accomplish salvation on their own. Neither did He see any notoriety, any people of notoriety who would be quote-unquote good for the spread of the gospel message. God simply looked upon them as a people in need and chose them and awoken them to their need for a Savior. Many times in our world today, people who prize the things of the world, people who are mired by the world and according to the world's standards, are resistant to the gospel message because there's a perceived lack of need or there is a very significant concern over a negative stigma that might be attached to them if they were to associate with Christ. They have all they want. They have all they need. They have elevated themselves in their own eyes to the extent that biblical wisdom, as expressed in God's Word, most centrally at the cross of Christ, seems to be beneath me. I've got multiple PhDs. I've got more money than I could hope to spend in a lifetime. I am applauded by, I am approved by great multitudes of people. Everywhere I go, people know my name. Why would I need the cross of Christ? Haven't I arrived Well, according to the standards of this world, perhaps you have. But that isn't the standard that God uses when He judges us and confronts us on the door of eternity. God isn't looking for the elite of the world to do His work, but for those who by faith believe in the message of the cross. Think about the people that God has called and chosen to do His work throughout all of the biblical revelation. Before God called Moses, what was it that Moses was guilty of? He was angered that an Egyptian was beating a Hebrew slave and he killed him and buried him in the sand and fled, right? God chose David to be the archetype king. And what was David guilty of? Adultery and murder. We enter into the New Testament and Jesus chose the woman at the well. Jesus called Zacchaeus a wicked tax collector. And Jesus even called the Apostle Paul who was the most fierce persecutor of the church. 
and whose writings through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit make up nearly 50% of the New Testament revelation. God isn't looking for the elite of the world. God is looking for those whose hearts are set on Him. And so He calls them and awakens them and chooses to use them in the work of His kingdom. God's wisdom is a kind of paradox. In human thinking, strength is strength, weakness is weakness, and intelligence is intelligence. But in God's economy, some of the seemingly strongest things are actually the weakest. Some of the seemingly weakest things are actually the strongest. And some of the seemingly wisest things are the most foolish. The paradox is not by accident, but by God's own design. You know, when you read the Beatitudes, they're complete paradoxes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You read those things, you go, you know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, you know why? It's spiritually appraised. Apart from understanding the central message of the cross, the rest of Scripture isn't going to make any sense. So why should we take this very clear and very simple gift of salvation and try to add to it a bunch of human philosophy and human wisdom and add to it the how or the why of our salvation. So why did God save you? Not because of anything He saw in you. Not any merit, not any potential. How did God save you? Not because of anything that you've done. Not because of anything that you might do so that you could never deserve it. But God simply chose to awaken you and call you for this gift of salvation. This is very clearly spelled out in verse 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are. So it's very clear that God has taken the weak to make them strong. God has taken the foolish to make them wise, and vice versa. And then he says the base things of the world. That word base means ignoble, or the unholy, or the unworthy. God has chosen the ignoble, you and I, for this gift of salvation. There's not anything in us that merits God's choosing us. It's simply God's choosing. God chose the despised, which refers to those considered as nothing. In other words, God chose even you for your salvation, the nobodies of the world, with absolutely nothing that your world would consider worthwhile. You may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. You may not have more than two cents to rub together. You may not possess any quality or character or trait that the world deems to be worthwhile. But nonetheless, God has chosen us for this incredible gift of salvation. And He did so according to His wisdom, not according to the world's. 
The world measures greatness by many different standards, some of which are intelligence and wealth and prestige and position, things which God has determined to put at the bottom. Makes no difference to God. You might have a sixth grade education. Doesn't matter to God. He chose you anyway. Isn't that great to know? And doesn't that speak of the incredible grace of God that we can possess absolutely nothing of what the world prizes most and yet we can still be saved by the grace of God? Wow. Absolutely incredible. God has chosen us all to salvation, number seven, in His wisdom. I'm sorry, I didn't put those up. I'll give you a second to fill in your blanks there. God has chosen us all to this salvation for His glory. Number Verse 29, rather. So that no man may boast before God. You know, imagine what it would be like If God chose us according to the standards of the world, could you imagine what the conversation might be like? Well, you know, brother, I made $28 million in my lifetime. I fed hundreds of families. And I did this and this and this. Is that right? Well, I explained all of the most complex mathematical equations. And so you have all of this boasting going on. All of these reasons why you deserved God's salvation. And God says, that's not the way it works. I've erased all of that from the equation. I have simply called you for my glory. So that no man may boast before God. You know, the glory of God is the very purpose of of our existence, why would it be any different for our salvation? Our salvation is for His glory, period. So that the nobodies of the world would be able to proclaim to the rest of the world the greatness of this God, the amazing grace that He has displayed the incalculable love that He has showered upon me, apart from anything that you, the world, might might deem worthwhile. We aren't saved because we deserve it. We aren't saved because we've earned it. We are saved by the grace of God for His glory. So in choosing the nobodies of the world for salvation, God has intentionally removed the possibility of any man entering into heaven with anything other than the grace of God in His hands. When you come before God and you say, this is what I have to offer, it's simply the gift of grace as expressed through the cross. It's not your money. It's not your intelligence. It's not your influence. It's nothing that the world would ever deem to be worthwhile. We come with only the grace of God. Nobody can boast in themselves regarding their salvation. In fact, it's just the opposite We come before God and we say, God, I have nothing to give to you. There's nothing worthwhile in me. I am a wretched sinner deserving of hell. Yet you gave me 
this gift of love, this gift of salvation, and it's my faith and your provision that I have to give back to you. That's all I have. And God says, that's all I want. God, that's just amazing. It's amazing that that's what God does. We are saved in spite of who we are, which only magnifies the glory of God. Number eight, salvation is from Him. Verse 30, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have been saved. The wisdom of God communicated through the cross has enabled us to be saved because of Christ. That's the message that the world needs to hear. That's the message that we have believed and we have placed our faith in. Salvation is of Him and from Him and because of Him and man has nothing to do with it. He is our wisdom. This statement is a direct challenge to the worldly wisdom that the Corinthians prized so greatly. You could line up the greatest philosophical minds in all the world, the world has ever known, and the world will ever know. And what you and I would say is, I reject it because He is my wisdom. He's the source of my wisdom. It comes from Him. It is because of Him. It is very simply the message of Christ on the cross. So put away philosophy, ignore the alleged wise man, and hear the wisdom of God through the message of Jesus on the cross, your atoning sacrifice, satisfying God's holy and righteous standard, enabling enabling us to know Him, to know who we are, to know why we're here, to know where our eternal destination is going to be. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God to us, meaning He is the source of our salvation. And since He is the source of our salvation, He is our righteousness, He is our sanctification, and He is our redemption. Now what's very unusual is that these three descriptive words are all nouns, they're not verbs, and each of these nouns are a way of expressing the gift and the result of of salvation, which makes them explanatory. So one commentator says this, the sentence then could read like this, He has become for us wisdom from God, that is, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's a way of explaining what this wisdom is as it explains our salvation. It is our wisdom, it is our redemption, it is our righteousness, it is our sanctification. Christ and God's wise plan has become our righteousness and has taken our sin upon Himself. Christ has become our sanctification and has made possible our growth and grace in the Christian life. He is our redemption, the person by whom we have been delivered from sin, the devil, hell, and the grave. He became for us what we could never become on our own or through philosophy 
or human wisdom. God has erased it. He has set it aside. He has replaced it with His own. And it very simply magnifies our salvation for His glory. Number nine, so that we would praise Him. Verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So instead of praising ourselves for our salvation, for the ways human philosophy or wisdom might say, well, you've earned it or you've deserved it. We can only praise him for we have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. No part in it other than accepting it through our faith in Jesus Christ. We praise Him alone for our salvation. Finally, number 10, God's wisdom is evidenced in Paul. This begins our journey into chapter 2. Paul, in these five verses, in many respects, is gives a paraphrasing or a summarization of what he began in verse 17 and has concluded in verse 31. So Paul says in verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This is what was this is what is rephrased from 1 Corinthians 1.17. He didn't speak to them with clever speech or the newest ideas and worldly wisdom. Paul arrived in Corinth years earlier, not as a philosopher with the latest and greatest fad and human philosophy. So what we don't understand, because we're not in that culture, is it was common for philosophers to try to impress their audience, to dazzle them with their skill or their intellect, or to confound them or confuse them with their new and improved teaching. So when you came into a city as a philosopher, it was important for you to capture their attention, to dazzle and entertain them, and to leave them saying, ooh, that's pretty interesting. I've never thought of that before. That must be a really smart guy. We need to listen to him. So if you came into a city and were a philosopher, you had to do that or you didn't have an audience. Paul says, this is not how I came to you. I didn't come to you with clever speech. I didn't come to you trying to dazzle you with fancy teaching or impressive words. I came to you and simply proclaimed the testimony of God, which is another way of saying he preached the cross of Christ, which is the center of God's testimony. So God's wisdom is evidenced in Paul in three ways. Letter A, in his message. Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, this is a paraphrase of what Paul said in verses 18 through 25 in chapter 1. So, Paul centralizes the wisdom of God in the message of the cross in that passage. And this is what he restates that I determined there was nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul wasn't interested in exchanging ideas 
or popular views of philosophy with his audience. He wasn't interested in in debating the merits of their wisdom. His only purpose was to teach them about Jesus and about Jesus crucified on the cross. In a similar way, when you and I come to church, we shouldn't hear the pastor's opinions about politics or psychology or economics or even religion. We should hear a word from the Lord through the pastor. God's word edifies and unifies human opinions, confuse and divide. This is what Paul came to do. I came to unify you in a common understanding of the cross of Christ so that you would speak the same thing about the central message of the cross of Christ and not get drugged down and muddied up by the human philosophy and wisdom of the day. I came to preach to you Christ and Christ crucified. So Paul's habit when traveling into a new area was to go to the synagogues and explain to them how Christ fulfilled the promise of the Messiah. So he would do that with a Jewish audience and invariably that impact would spread outside of the synagogue into the pagan Greek culture of the day. We read this in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Oh, by the way, this is explaining Paul's first journey to the city of Corinth. Verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This is exactly what Paul did in the city of Corinth. He was an ambassador for Christ sent to the Gentile world to preach the message of the cross. He was not a philosopher trying to engage them in some new teaching. I would guess that as they would hear those words, that they would probably reflect back to the time when Paul was with them, when Paul was teaching them and preaching them to about, preaching them about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, and it would bring back to their minds all that Christ, all that Paul had said to them. Think about this. When you think back upon some of the teaching of Pastor Greg, or some of the teaching of a popular evangelist, or somebody who is spiritually influential in your life, they might send you a note or a card, or you might read something in a blog, and you might be reminded of all that they said when they were with you, and how it drew you into Christ, how it motivated you, motivated you to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, to trust the Lord. And so I would imagine that the Corinthians are hearing this reminder, and they are remembering all that Paul Paul was saying to them, and how he preached Christ and Christ crucified. Paul, the preacher, telling us the wonderful news of God's grace and his willingness to save a wretched people like us. Paul came to preach Christ, and he did so as evidenced in his humility. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. So there's quite a bit of debate about exactly what Paul means 
in this phraseology, there isn't any clarity anywhere else specifically with what Paul means here. Many believe that this expresses how Paul viewed himself apart from Christ and in the eyes of the world. An unoppressive man with very little to offer. So in the eyes of the world, the message of the cross is weak, and so are its messengers. This is why we will read a little bit later Paul's, mess, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. So as the world looks upon Paul and his cohorts, they look at them and go, who are these characters? What is this new teaching? We don't have, we don't want anything to do with that. You have nothing to offer to me. I will completely ignore all that you have to say. So it's possible that this is what Paul sees when he sees himself apart from his apostolic call and his commission to serve the Gentile world as an ambassador. The fear and trembling may refer to Paul's natural concern over his health and well-being, and we all know that his treatment as an evangelist and a preacher is very well documented. All that Paul went through, the beatings, the floggings, the persecutions, etc., etc., are well known to us. And so the book of Acts describes Paul's first visit to the church in Corinth years earlier. So this carries with it both a possibility of the physical risk that is there, but it also introduces to us the spiritual battle that Paul fought every time he entered into a new arena for preaching the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 18, verses 8 through 10, we read this. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So even in the midst of a positive reception where the leader of the synagogue believed and his whole family was baptized and many others were believing, Paul was waging spiritual warfare over the physical risk. And so there is this sense with which Paul was carrying out his apostolic commission with fear and trembling. This is expressed, I believe, in Philippians 2.12, along with other commentators and scholars who say, and we read this in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This has almost nothing to do with human emotion or human feeling, but everything to do with the warfare that we are engaged in as we understand our own spiritual weakness, the power of sin's temptation, and the consequence of giving into that temptation. 
which was a constant battle for Christians, even Paul. We don't recognize it. We really ought to be reminded of this on a very regular basis. But you you and I are in the midst of spiritual warfare each and every day. And that warfare is centered in our faithfulness to God, our commitment to live out the gospel message in a way that would please God so that our lives would have a positive impact in the world around us. And we need to be reminded that the power of temptation is very real and very strong. And the consequence of giving in to that temptation is very real as well. So we work out our salvation, not earning it, not deserving it, but living it out in terms of a spiritual battle with fear and trembling, depending upon God to see us through. This is what I believe Paul means by that. Finally, Paul reminds them that he didn't speak to them with the power of worldly wisdom, but he spoke to them in God's power. Verses 4 and 5. And my presence and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. These verses are a rephrasing of of. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, which deal with clever speech and the perceived foolishness of the cross. So Paul makes a contrast between the message he gave and those who are in the wisdom business. Their conversion was not the result of Paul's clever words or of his persuasiveness, but it was the result of God's power through the work of the Holy Spirit as he had called them and awoken them to the importance, the wisdom, the central nature of the cross of Christ. The wisdom of the the world is weak and ineffective in converting lost souls because it ignores the wisdom of God expressed in the message of the cross. So if the conversion of the Corinthians was brought about by clever speech or by worldly wisdom, then their conversion was dependent upon man and not upon God, and their faith would not be in God's provision, but in their own. Human wisdom may change us intellectually, but it cannot and it will not change us spiritually. Paul will tell the church of Corinth in his next letter this very thing in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no human philosophy. There is no human wisdom that would ever say such a thing. But that is the message of the cross. If man could satisfy the righteous requirements of God and bridge the gap between our sin and His holiness through human wisdom or through human philosophy, then the cross of Christ was unnecessary and it would have been a cruel act by a loving and gracious God to send His one and only Son to die such a brutal and painful death if it were not necessary. So we are to be united around God's wisdom, not through human wisdom. We are one in Jesus Christ and should be one in His Word and in His power and in the fellowship of those who are His, excuse me, of those who are His through the message of the cross. It is an amazing thing for me to recognize 
that there is absolutely nothing in me that merits the gift of salvation. There's nothing in you that merits the gift of salvation. Apart from anything that you have done or might do in the future, we're just nobodies. That God has chosen to awake to understand the message of the cross. What do we say to that? That's all we have to say. Praise Him. Would you pray with me, please?